Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Markets higher today. Everything rally continues. I'm wondering how long can this continue? So is everyone else on Wall Street joining us now to discuss is Urian Timmer, Fidelity Investments Director of Global Macro Research and Strategy. Uh, he is coming to us from our Boston studio. Urian, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with how long can the everything rally continue? Well, from my experience, um, bull markets end for only a couple of reasons. You know, one, uh, the main reason is that inflation ends up accelerating during the so-called late cycle uh, stage of the of the business cycle, and that forces the Fed to essentially over-tighten, tighten more than the economy can handle. You get a recession, you get a bear market, and that's the end of, of the cycle. Uh, obviously, we don't have that because inflation is persistently undershooting the Fed's target to such a degree that the Fed actually now has the free option to cut rates a couple of times, even though we are uh, in a very advanced phase of the business cycle. So it's a very unusual cycle. But basic, you know, basically, in my opinion, the, this is not a linear system. So the cycle could theoretically continue or it can slow and then get some new life in it. And I think that's probably what the Fed is trying to accomplish here is to essentially extend the cycle and, uh, and therefore extend the bull market. You know, the S&P or the Dow has been in a holding pattern now for about 18 months, just like it did back in late 14 to early 16. And we're pushing against that 3,000 level on the S&P. And uh, if earnings season is okay and it doesn't come too much at the expense of coming quarters and earnings do stage the rebound that the market is essentially expecting, and then the Fed throws a couple of rate cuts into the mix, then you could argue that the cycle can can keep going. So, Yurian, it looks like uh, it's been reported by some Chinese media that the U.S. trade delegation will be returning to Beijing next week. How important to the markets, to your outlook, is it to get a real deal done with China? Uh, trade, of course, is extremely important for the markets. You could, uh, and it's and for the economy as well, of course. But you could argue that it's actually more important for the markets than than the real economy because the real economy, led by you know seventy percent consumer spending, um, is doing pretty well. The consumer's in good shape. You know, debt levels are low, wages are rising, unemployment's at a fifty-year low. So you could argue that if uh, you know tariffs are a form of a tax and they get passed on to the consumer, that in the current economic environment, the economy might slow as a result of it. And we're already, we've already been seeing that. But that ultimately, the economy will do okay. But then when you look at the S&P 500 and how that's really more of a global index, um, where companies are sort of geared or levered towards globalization in terms of you know, very efficient supply chains and how that affects their profit margins and therefore their earnings growth. Uh, you can see the S&P actually being more vulnerable to a lack of progress on the trade front. And I think that's what we're essentially seeing because since the first tariff uh, was lobbed 18 months ago or so, the market, as I said before, hasn't really made much progress. And when you look at the earnings season in Q1, you know, Q1 ended up beating expectations, uh, but then at coming at the expense of Q2 and uh, and Q2 looks like it's doing about the same thing. So 
if I'm a company in the U.S. Uh, and I, I rely on globalization to keep my profit margins high and I don't know what the state of play is, um, I'm either going to do nothing for a while or I'm going to try to uh, re-engineer those supply chains, but that that's costly and that takes time as well. So I think that that explains a lot of why we are where we are in the market. So it is very important. I, I don't have high expectations that a total, you know, broadly encompassing deal will happen, but maybe there will be a few uh, singles and doubles here along the way. Jurian, why would any investor want to trade this kind of backdrop? Um, well, I don't really believe in, in, in trading so much. I believe in, in, in investing for the long term. And I think one of the drivers for this market is that uh, you know, we are in a 10-year expansion. We, as I said before, we don't have that inflation uh, boogeyman you know, uh, threatening to, to undo it. We also don't have a lot of uh, pent-up you know, leverage types of bubbles, but, other than maybe corporate balance sheets. Go ahead. Yeah, but no, but my, my, my point is, why not just do a 60-40 portfolio and leave it at that? I mean, if basically you've got this sort of push-pull dynamic that's going to go on for a while and everyone's saying it's range-bound, why even think more about it? Do the 60-40, put it in, sleep on it, and not think again. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. You know, the the strategic allocation, which is what you're referring to, um, is what drives most performance over the long term. Now, tactical allocation is is important if the opportunity set is there, and you could argue maybe EM versus U.S. equity allocations are an opportunity set right now. Uh, you know, we can talk about that. But the strategic allocation, whether it's sixty forty, seventy thirty, or whatever it is, um, I think ultimately is what drives uh, you know investors to a change. Uh, achieving their their ultimate goals, and I think it's very important to keep uh, our eye on the prize and not try to overtrade something because maybe we get a ten percent correction or even a twenty percent correction. We got one in December, and the market you know immediately um, retraced that. So um, trading can be detrimental to our financial health. I agree. So you're in. How concerned should I be about? Uh the economies outside of the U.S. I'm thinking about Western Europe, uh, very week to week. Uh, Brexit not helping. We've got China slowing, although still putting up some decent growth. Do I have to be concerned about that? Well, global growth has been slowing for over a year. You know, the J.P. Morgan Global PMI peaked at 54.4, I think, um, a year ago, more than a year ago, and is down at 49 and change. Uh, the U.S. sort of was bucking that trend for a while, but has now joined the slowdown, you know, with the U.S. ISM going from 61 to 51. So clearly there is a global growth uh, slowdown underway, and this is obviously one of the reasons why the Fed feels like it has the option to, to cut rates here. You know, even like the natural rate, so-called R-star, is starting to drift lower by a few tenths of a percent. So I think the Fed is doing the right thing. Um, and But globally, you know, China is, I think, my, my main concern. I mean, the, the, the weakness on the manufacturing side in Europe, especially Germany, you can sort of tie that to to China weakness as well, and of course Europe has a has a banking issue um, also. But China, um, you know, it's reporting 6.2 percent growth, but my sense is that it's probably significantly less than that. And uh, one of the big questions is that if the trade 
uh, dispute gets resolved, and of course, China's economy presumably will do much better because it's more geared towards exports to the U.S. than the U.S. is geared towards imports from China. Uh, but if that doesn't happen, you wonder if China needs to pull out the big bazooka in terms of stimulus like they did in 2016. And if they do that, what does that do to the currency, to the yuan? Uh, does it break seven? So yes, it does concern me, uh, but I think the, the central bank pivot basically around the world right. will help in that sense. And you know, China and e- the EMs are already easing policy in anticipation of the Fed rate yep, cut. So the, so, so the Fed cutting rates does give the EMs room to do more stimulus. Yuri Timmer, thank you so much for joining us. Yuri is Director of Global Macro for Fidelity Investments, joining us in our Bloomberg Boston uh, studio. Thank you so much for joining us. tension between Iran and the U.S. as well as the European Union is rising. The latest is that Iran has accused a number of people of being in a CIA spy network and has sentenced them to death. Joining us now to talk about these tensions and what the potential fallout could be both on a geopolitical uh, standpoint as well as on oil markets. Ariel Cohen, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, joining us from Washington, D.C. Ariel, can you just first start by putting the latest accusations of these individuals being CIA spies. Can you please put that into perspective for us? Yes, of course. Uh, first of all, it's a tragedy that people, most probably some of them innocent or all of them innocent, uh, have been arrested, dragged to the infamous Evin prison in Tehran, where they would be tortured uh, and executed. Uh, some of these people may be, and may be known assets. Uh, any intelligence service worth its uh, metal um, would track uh, people who co- uh, collaborate uh, with foreign intelligence services. So at any time, they can pick them up uh, and then arrest them or kick them out of the country. Uh, this is a known tradecraft. However, uh, the fact that President Trump uh, tweeted uh, that this is fake news uh, makes me think that maybe Iranians just picked up some random opponents of the regime. After all, the uh, urban and educated population hates the regime in Iran. And they may have been uh, using this to settle scores, to punish people that are pro-Western or pro-American, but not spies. And that have been going on in Iran, that have been going on in Turkey, and in other places. So, Ariel, I wonder if you could just set the stage for us a little bit. There's so many moving pieces going on with Iran and the U.S. and other Western nations. In your opinion, what do you think President Trump's strategy is as it relates to Iran? Well, the the good question is, uh, does he have one? Does he have a strategy beyond trying to squeeze Iran uh, by imposing sanctions? And we saw from the leaked emails uh, from the former British ambassador uh, who said there's no uh, strategy in building a coalition, reaching out to our European allies. And also, once you uh, impose um, this pressure on the Iranian regime, granted, this is a very significant pressure, uh, more than anything we saw under uh, the Obama administration. Uh, what happens when you uh, corner Iran? Do you have enough deterrent power uh, to prevent Iran from doing what it's doing now? Uh, It uh, conducted seven attacks on uh, tankers and other boats uh, in uh, the Gulf. Um, It um, may 
um, fire rockets used proxies throughout the Middle East uh, from uh, Lebanon uh, to Yemen. It has militias that they support. However, what makes sense here is that the more you squelch the uh, cash flow for that regime, uh, the less money they have for the mischief. And then the question is, uh, when you relent, when you stop uh, pressure because of the negotiating process, would they go back next day to right. do what they've done so far well, that caused this thing in the first place? Well, but but Ariel, let's let's go at it from the other point of view because you sure. have Iran. Clearly, tensions are already uh, very high. They're suffering due to sanctions, and they don't want to go back to uh, having their finances completely cut off. And yet, uh, the UK government has accused them of seizing these tankers. Uh, now there is the accusations of the CIA uh, actors that are, as you just described. Alleged, so, yeah. what are they playing at? What are they looking for? Uh, they are playing tough. Uh, you need to understand the strategic culture uh, of uh, these countries, of each uh, country is not the same uh, as the other. North Koreans are not the same as Iranians. And the Iranians uh, are playing tough. We're not, you know, folding. We're not bending. Uh, we can escalate. Um, what they're involved now is piracy. Uh, we haven't seen that level of disruption uh, of international shipping, at least since Somalia pirates or the Iran-Iraq uh, war in the 1980s. I remember how President Reagan and President Bush um, reflagged uh, American, uh, reflagged tankers, uh, put American flags on them, and uh, provided American naval uh, assets uh, to um, guard uh, the ship, the shipments of oil. Uh, and in the end of the day what broke uh, the spirit of the Iranians it, when, by mistake, U.S. Navy shot down an Iranian civilian aircraft. So I'm not suggesting anything horrible like that. But what I'm suggesting is if you want to negotiate, we have to negotiate from a position of strength. And this is something we see the British uh, are ignoring. The British are failing uh, to provide uh, sufficient strength uh, to stop the Iranians from seizing their tankers. Uh, so it looks to me like it has to be a U.S., British, and possibly uh, other countries that are involved in oil shipping, maybe the Japanese, maybe other Europeans. But without negotiating from the position of strength, uh, the Iranians have no incentive to negotiate. Uh, and uh, we have no incentive to negotiate from the position of weakness. We need to show that we mean business. We need to put, put uh, more naval vessels and uh, guard the caravans that, that ship oil right. and make it very clear for the Iranians that if they mess it up, if they disrupt uh, the energy shipment in the Gulf, they will pay a very high, unsustainable yep. price for that regime. Ariel Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. Ariel Cohen is a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council from Washington, D.C., giving us his thoughts on the Iranian uh, issue as tensions continue to rise. Well, we just celebrated the moon landing of Apollo 11, which is prompting renewed discussion about the U.S. space program and its future. Our next guest can help us fill in some holes there. Safi Bakal is the author and physicist. He's based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Safi, thanks so much for joining us. I wonder if you could just give us a sense of 
where the U.S. space program is today. Well, we're celebrating this week the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, the moon landing which was one of the great inspiring events of human history. And then the U.S. led the world. The U.S. has led the world in space and science and technology for the last 50 years. But after that peak in the 60s and then the 70s, we gradually slowed down. And the question is why? Why should we give up that leadership? Because that leadership drove so much of the economy. And what's happening today is that NASA's role has shrunk because of competition from private industry, competition from the military, and we haven't had that spirit that we had so many years ago. And now the new race is with China, with Russia, and with India. And it's so important to understand this because we don't want to see, for example, the first colony on the moon being a Chinese colony or a Russian colony. We want, that would just Why be- Why not? An, that would, to me, that would be an admission of defeat. That would be an admission that our best years leading the world in science and technology are behind us, and I don't think they are. But, but what would you say to people who say that that's spending a lot of money on the part of the United States to basically uh, beat our chests, saying, you know, we're, we're the best, we're the best on the hill? I think those people fail to understand what was so important 50 years ago was the inspiration, the inspiration to young people, old people, average age people, just how powerful the idea of astronauts, the idea of exploring, the idea of space, and that ability to inspire our young people is a national advantage. Well, I like, you're also, uh, Safi, the uh, author of a Wall Street Journal bestseller, uh, and I love this title, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. When I think about that kind of mentality, a couple people that jump to mind are Richard Branson and Elon, Elon Musk. And not surprisingly, I guess, they're on the forefront of what might be the next wave of space travel. Well, I love what Elon Musk is doing. He's taking a big, bold approach to getting, for example, to Mars, and that's forcing NASA to react. That happened, almost the exact same playbook happened 30 years ago with another crucial big science project, and that was the sequencing of the human genome. Big project, incredibly important for medicine, for human health. Federal government had a 15-year, $3 billion plan, and a young billionaire in his early 40s came up and said, forget that. I have a faster, better, bolder way to do it. The two of them together challenged each other and raised the bar and did a much better job than either one alone. And that's what's playing out again with Elon Musk and NASA. So I'm delighted to see that. Your mother was a prominent scientist with NASA, as was your father. What did your mother think of this book that you wrote? Oh, my mother, I've had people from NASA reach out to me as and well. And what did they as, say? They want to nurture loon shots faster and better because the big ideas, the ones that truly change the course of science business or history, rarely arrive with blaring trumpets or red carpets dazzling everybody with their, with their brilliance. They usually are dismissed or neglected for years or even decades, and their champions written off as crazy. And NASA understands, as does the Army, as does the Air Force, as do CEOs, that we need more of those. So if NASA isn't making the big investments that a lot of people think are necessary to sort of cultivate uh, this, this sort of culture of, of innovation, 
what's the sort of expense here? I mean, are we losing prospective NASA scientists and just scientists in general who might otherwise get wrapped in and nurtured and brought into the fold for these loonshot explorations? Well, it's absolutely important to have this federal government investment in research and science and technology and the ideas people think might be just enormously crazy. That gave us, for example, the transistor, the internet, GPS, the personal computer industry. That's why that kind of investment in nurturing moonshots helped the U.S. lead the world in science and technology. And I think we lost our way for 10 or 20 years, but I'm seeing signs of a turnaround. With the recent announcement that we're definitely going to Mars, with the recent announcement we're going to try to establish a colony, a permanent uh, location on the moon, NASA trying to reach out and explore crazy new ideas, I think things are turning around, and I'm, I hope we can compete and beat China, India, and Russia to those milestones. Is this administration supportive of those types of investments? I do believe it is. And okay. I believe you're seeing the NASA budget increase. Certainly the inbound calls that I've gotten from NASA or even the military or intelligence agencies about wanting to nurture loon shots. How do we organize to nurture these crazy ideas faster and better? I've had a flood of those calls just in the last few weeks. And I, I think there's something has ignited. And I think it may be the competition with China. How closely tied uh, is the military to NASA? Uh, they're entirely separate. The reason why I ask is because some people say that it is actually a national defense issue with respect to uh, having a greater dominance in space. Do you adhere to that at all? I think having a greater dominance in space means a greater competitive advantage in science and technology and engineering, and that benefits everybody. It benefits NASA, it benefits science, it benefits national security, and it benefits our companies, our U.S. companies, our U.S. technologies, and our intellectual base, our intellectual capital for the future, which is the education of our young people. Well, it seems like when I look at Elon Musk and his space program, he's doing some amazing things. I just uh, seeing video of the rockets that actually land after use. Um, that's a strikingly new technology. Is there a sense that NASA will work with some of these private uh, players as well? NASA has absolutely made it clear that they want to partner. And that is incredibly important. That's exactly the right attitude. That's exactly what worked 20, 30 years ago with the Human Genome Project. The federal government national research sponsored the basic technology that got us the biotech industry. And then all sorts of private industry worked with the federal government. And because of that, the U.S. leads the world in healthcare and in drug discovery. And I think the same thing is starting to play out in space science. Thank you so much. This is really, really interesting. Safi Bakal, author and physicist uh, from Cambridge, Massachusetts. He is also the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Loon Shots, How to Nurture the Crazy Ideas that Win Wars, Cure Diseases, and Transform Industries. I love the idea of loon shots. Yes, very cool. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Brooke Sutherland. Brooke, I know you cover all things industrials. We're right smack in the middle of the second quarter earnings period. It's kind of a mixed week last week. I think about CSX on the downside. Uh, some of the other names had kind of some mixed results. Uh, you think there might be even some more uh, rocky roads coming up here for the earnings? Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on what 
expectations are going into earnings. And so last week we saw CSX sell off more than 10% on its earnings report. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that the stock was up almost 30% going into earnings, which signals to me that people thought this was going to be a relatively safe place to hide out. um, And they were wrong in that assessment. Um, But then you had names like J.B. Hunt and Union Pacific that actually, you know, got a little nice pop off their earnings. And I think that just was because expectations had been lowered so much going into that. But there are a fair amount of names that are like a CSX that people have been sort of piling into. And I wonder if those are as defensive as people think they are. Like what? Well, another name that I think about is Honeywell, which did actually report earnings last week. Um, and they were they were good. I don't want to take away from it, but they were they had some of the same slowdown trends that we're seeing elsewhere um, in the industry, particularly in some of their shorter sales market, like their productivity and sales division. Um, organic growth for the quarter was a little bit weaker than analysts expected. I mean, they still had overall 5% organic sales growth. So it's not like the sky is falling, but I do wonder, you know, especially given the struggles that GE has had and 3M has had, there's been a lot of people piling into Honeywell and what's really keeping that stock alive is aerospace. Right. But if that starts to crack at all, then that can be rather problematic. When industrials don't do well, people often say, look, this is a sign of the trade war. This is a sign of a slowing uh, macro economy. I'm wondering, based on what you're saying, whether that's an inaccurate narrative, whether it's more that people have just overpriced these shares heading in and uh, are expecting too much, and it's more just sort of taking off some of the profits from earlier in the year. Is that is that a better way to look at it? I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think they're definitely feeling the pain of the trade war uncertainty. I mean, that's a big part of why you're seeing some of these sales numbers come down. They're citing people not really being comfortable with moving forward with these new investments. Um, But on the other hand, I think you have this weird dynamic where investors don't really have anywhere to go. Are you going to you know, pile into overpriced equities? Or are you going to go into low yielding bonds? I mean, like, what are, what are your options here? And I do think there's this misperception about the way that an interest rate cut can play out for industrial companies. This whole idea that a 25 basis point cut is going to spur this new rash of investments and in like machinery purchases among industrial companies, I just don't buy it. The cost of debt is very low. It's been low for years. All of these companies had a huge influx of cash from the tax overhaul. I don't think any of them are sitting around saying, you know what, if I can just get that 25 basis point cut, I'm going to build a new factory. I'm going to buy a new, um, you know, giant piece of machinery. And so I just don't know that that's going to be the saving grace that, um, some investors would seem to think it is just given where some of these stocks are trading. Well, one of your favorite names I know is Boeing. Back in the news today, uh, downgraded uh, uh, or the outlook of revised to negative from stable by Fitch. And I know the Southwest Air CEO is out talking about how they're still looking at the 737 MAX. And if it's not there, they're going to have to make other plans, I guess. What's the latest that you expect to hear from Boeing? So Boeing did come out last week and they said they're going to take a $4.9 billion after-tax charge in the second quarter. And that represents their estimate at this point in time for what they're going to compensate the airlines for keeping the max grounded. Now, importantly, that does not include any litigation costs or settlements with families or anything like that. That would all be separate. And they did also say they were going to expect $1.7 billion in increased costs. And that has to do with taking down production of the MAX to accommodate the surplus of inventory they have building up. They're basing all of that on the expectation that the MAX comes back early in the fourth quarter. That, to me, <laughs> seems optimistic. Uh, and I, 
it does give me pause because again and again, you have Boeing with the most aggressive timeline. I remember they back in March were saying they would have all the paperwork into the FAA by the end of March for a fix. And then we've subsequently seen all of these negative headlines coming out about the fact that some of these planes weren't, you know, the sensors that would were tied to that flight software system that's been uh, blamed for the two crashes weren't operational on some of the planes as they'd promised. Then there's a separate issue with a microprocessor. And I just, I wonder what the value is in being the most optimistic, aggressive one in the room at this point in time, if you're Boeing. Um, and I do think, you know, there, there is a risk that this does slip into 2020 just because the FAA is obviously incentivized as well to protect its reputation, make sure they coordinate with international regulators and make sure this thing is safe before you get it back in the skies. It all sounds really bad. Boeing shares down, though, nine-tenths of one percent. Not a huge decline as a lot of bad news already is baked in. Investors kind of shrugging with a Fitch yep. uh, downgrade. Yep. They're putting in a watch saying, all right, guys, I mean, we know it's not a great situation. Brooke Sutherland, thank you so much for being with us. Brooke Sutherland is Deals and Industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.